The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, jury selection for what is sure to be the biggest trial of the year began this week, and already headlines are being made. Court TV anchor Michael Ayala will join me to discuss the latest updates, including a last-minute appeal to add a murder charge and efforts to include George Floyd's prior bad acts into the trial. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. I'm Vinnie Politan. Thanks so much for downloading the Court TV podcast. We appreciate it. And here we are, folks. It, it didn't take long from the time that the video of George Floyd went viral of him dying Memorial Day weekend last year to now the murder trial of the man accused of killing George Floyd has started. Derek Chauvin is the first of four police officers who will be tried. He is being tried by himself. And as we are speaking right now, uh, there are a lot of a lot of things happening in the case, and any minute things could change drastically. That's because of we are in the midst of some very complicated litigation that is taking place as jury selection is going on, and this litigation can result in the entire trial just coming to a screeching halt at any moment. So, uh, as we speak now, though, uh, it is going on, and jury selection is is going forward. Um, I want to bring in Michael Ayala, my colleague, my friend, uh, Court TV anchor. We worked together in New York at the uh, first incarnation of Court TV, and now we're, we're back together uh, here, which is great. Uh, Michael, this is a very complicated um, legal scenario that we are in because it seems there's like three different things happening at once as this trial is beginning. Yeah, it is. You know, it was interesting at the dinner table last night, I was trying to explain it to my wife. She was watching the show and it, I was having trouble really explaining it to her. It took a while. But yeah, we've got a couple of different things going on. The, the prosecution wants to slow things down because they feel like they want to know on a full slate of charges. They want that third degree murder charge included. But this particular court right now does not have jurisdiction over that charge because it's still pending in the appellate court. Um, I had thought it was cleared up with the last ruling saying, hey, it's presidential, go for it, but uh, it's still being appealed again. So we've got to wait on that. And then uh, you know, we've got a couple of other things uh, on the forefront as well. So yeah, uh, like you said, at any moment, this thing could come to a screeching halt, um, but I still believe we're going to go on March 29th. We are going to go full-blown trial. With the opening statements beginning, and that's when they're scheduled for, regardless of how long it takes to... Uh, get a jury in this case, and we're in jury selection. And, Michael, this, uh, there's a third-degree charge that the judge originally dismissed. Prosecutors wanted it back in. They appealed to the appellate court. Appellate court agreed with prosecutors and said, yeah, it should go back in, but the judge can't do anything with it now because the defense has appealed that decision by the appellate court to the Supreme Court of Minnesota. So that is being litigated. Then you've got prosecutors in the midst of, of trying to start jury selection telling the judge that he should not go forward. They don't want him to go forward, so they filed this emergency uh, writ of prohibition trying to get the appellate court to bring a screeching halt to the case. In the meantime, I love Judge Cahill. He just plows 
plows ahead uh, with jury selection. So uh, to me, where we are right now is we're, we're, we're on time, we're on schedule, we're moving forward. Uh, but there are a few things that could perhaps alter that. Um, why do you think prosecutors want to slow everything down? I mean, they don't they have the, the, the best piece of evidence, the most influential piece of evidence that any prosecutor has ever had in the history of, of criminal justice, at least in my time in covering our system? Yeah, and we thought that in the Rodney King case, too, didn't we? And it didn't work out that way. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what they want is full clarity. Uh, they made a, a fairly cogent argument, although the, the judge didn't necessarily buy it, this idea that they want to make sure that they have all the charges that are possible flowing from this sequence of events so that they're not barred later if there's an issue by double jeopardy. So let's say it doesn't work out that way and they want to appeal the issue. The appeal doesn't help them because they can't go back and recharge them again with third degree murder if it's not included here or they feel like it was included late and it affected the way that they prepared for trial. So they are making the argument that the way they prepare for trial, the way they voir dire witnesses is affected by the charges. And if they are unsure whether there's a third degree murder charge, that could affect the outcome of the case. It could affect the jury that's chosen, which in turn could again affect the outcome of the case. So they'd rather wait and err on the side of caution and that's what they're asking the judge to do. But this judge, as you said, very clearly wants this thing to move forward. Everything and every decision he's making is, is so that this case can stay on track. And quite frankly, he's got control of that courtroom. He's making solid rulings. He's given his reasonings for rulings. I think he's doing a good job. Yeah, and, and I don't think anyone could say at this point, you know, sometimes judges have, you know, have a book on judges. Oh, that's a, that's a liberal judge or, or that's a conservative judge. You know, no, this judge is making calls both ways, and, and it's, it's not uh, helping one side more than the other. Some calls go one way, some calls go the other way, which is kind of what you want from a judge. But let's take a listen to the, to the prosecutor talking about uh, this entire issue here. When we start to get into matters that are so um, involved in the trial itself, such as the charges, the jury instructions, what the potential jurors are told at the beginning of the trial, um, you create an appeal issue that will only be resolved after the case has been tried. And we, and Your Honor, we, we're not trying to delay this case. We want to try this case, but we want to try it right. And we only have the ability to try it once um, in, under certain circumstances, right? So we don't want to create appeal issues um, that are, you know, stem from the court's jurisdiction. It, it's not something defense can waive, agree to. It's the authority of this court to hear a matter. And so it, it's creating an appeal issue where we shouldn't be um, and, and we and we can avoid it. Uh, two things on this, Michael. Number one, where he says uh, we're not trying to delay this. Well, come on. This is like the, the fifth different time you've asked for the, the, the case to be delayed. So you are trying to delay it. Uh, and, and to me, it's very obvious. And I think it's obvious to the judge as well. Um, the other part is um, this is Matthew Frank. He's with the attorney general's office. Um, I, I understand he's making a legal argument here, which is probably appropriate. Um, but I think if he's going to be making an opening statement or a closing argument to the jury, he's going to have to bring a little more, a little more passion uh, <laughs> to the floor, don't you think, Michael? 
Yeah, well, they've, they've brought in some private attorneys, and I think it's clear why. I mean, Matthew Frank may obviously be a strong legal mind, and he's obviously good at what he does, but you're right. The, the person that I was watching there was not, uh, did not command the presence in the courtroom. And I think a case like this, I think part of, you know, part of this, Vinny, is theater. Right, the people are watching this trial because they. It, most people have a sense of what outcome they want. Some people are watching it with an open mind, but at the end of the day, they're going to want to see vigorous lawyering on both sides. I think what we're seeing from the defense side with Eric Nelson is a guy extremely competent, seems to know what he's doing, has a presence um, which I've been impressed by. And when I did some research on him for a story I did on him, that was the book on him. He wasn't out. He wasn't a showman in that sense, but he's a guy that commands respect based on his know-how, his knowledge, and his command of the courtroom. And I think we've seen that. Matthew Frank, I think he's got to dial it up a little bit for this particular case if he wants to be the front man. Uh, yeah, I think you have to um, because, you know, sometimes... And, and I've seen prosecutors with different approaches. Sometimes they're very uh, just the facts, ma'am, kind of uh, approach to presenting a case. And then I've seen ones who, who when you hear them, you, you're, you're living the case. And, and they're almost, they're taking you to the scene. Obviously, they have the video here. I, I get it. But still, for, for the passion, because this is going to be a contested case. I mean, it's contested across the board. All the elements of the crime will be contested. Nothing is saying, they are not giving anything away. And this isn't a, a situation where you know, someone was murdered and both sides agree someone was murdered. It's just someone else did it, not the person being tried. So every, everything that prosecutors have to prove um, is going to be contested by the defense. And they, they've, I think they've got to they've up it to, to another level to, to equal um, the moment that, that it's in. But we'll see. You know, I, I've never covered a case in Minnesota before, Michael. You know, so I don't know how those jurors would react. Uh, to a guy like me coming into the courtroom, I don't. They might be totally, <laughs> totally turned off by this Jersey guy. Um, but what I'm saying is, is just having that that sense of, listen, I am here to to I I am here to seek justice in what is an incredible injustice, ladies and gentlemen. And I think that's what this jury's going to have to feel. Yeah, no question about it. And 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 again, my sense is that they brought in these two other attorneys. Um, and, and this morning, I we got a glimpse of a couple of them doing some of the voir dire. Um, they're the ones that are doing the voir dire, so I get the sense that they're the ones that are going to be up front in the courtroom, and they certainly have presented themselves as much more passionate, much more sort of uh, talented orators in that sense. Um, and one of them happens to be a black man, which I think for optics is important as well. Um, so I agree with you, Vinny, and I think I, I think that's the way it's going to play out. I think Matthew Frank is probably going to take a little bit of a more background sort of supervisory role um, and let these other two gentlemen sort of be out front. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a battle. And, and again, we keep talking about this third-degree murder, which um, is not a part of the case now, could be a part of the case, but second degree is the top charge. And, and prosecutors not just have to prove, but have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Derek Chauvin assaulted and intended to assault George Floyd, and George Floyd died as a result of those actions. So um, to me, that's what the case is really about. You know, I think the, the backup, I don't think there's any way Derek Chauvin, you know, obviously anything can happen, but I can't see 12 people allowing him to just walk out of the courtroom without any level of culpability for this. I mean, I'm sure it's possible, but living and watching that video every time I watch it, you know, once you get to four minutes and then the, the last five minutes where 
there's nothing coming from George Floyd. And, and the you hear what the, the onlookers are saying and the inaction. I, I can't imagine 12 people watching that video and saying, well, yeah, yeah, he could have done better, but you know what? It is what it is. I, I can't see that. So I see the, the, the manslaughter charge as, you know, the backup if they can't prove that he intentionally uh, uh, assaulted George Floyd. But to me, that's what the case is about. Yeah, no question, Vinny. And it's a matter of degree, right? As we talked about, you know, what, how is this jury going to view his actions? Was it just an unreasonableness that they're going to see? Is it going to be rise to the level of the depraved mind? Is it going to rise to the level of intent? That's where sort of the case is going to live. Um, the only issue that I think maybe could cause a problem here is this cause of death issue. If the defense is able to convince this jury that George Floyd did not die as a result of these actions. And you double that with the fact that they can show that what the officer was doing for those first four or five minutes were actually according to the book, according to the way he was trained. Now you say, okay, he's doing what he's told to do. He's uh, sticking to the book. George Floyd is under him. He's not being choked. He's not being asphyxiated. Then he dies of this overdose with this fentanyl and methamphetamine in the system. That's not that's not culpable as far as um, he's not culpable. That Derek Chauvin may not be culpable for that. So that last five minutes that we're both talking about, where everyone there can see that he's in distress and is no longer um, resisting arrest in any way, such that it requires what what Derek Chauvin is doing. He may already have been dead if this jury decides that he's dead because of the methamphetamine and the fentanyl, I think there, there, there could be a road there for, them, for him to walk away. You make a great point. And in my notes, I actually wrote this down. Big challenge, cause of death. I mean, literally wrote that on my, on my notes there. Big challenge, cause of death. And I, I, think, I think you're 100% right because, and that's the way I think the defense is going to have to approach it, is that the last five minutes are you know, legal term moot, you know, irrelevant because he's already dead, but he's not dead because of Derek Chauvin. So when we come back, let's let's talk a little bit more about that and also talk about some of the evidence that is not going to be in this case that could help prosecutors prove that and and some evidence that could help the defense with their version of death, which is uh, drug-related here. So we'll, we'll break that down when we return. Uh, and don't forget, folks, as always, you can watch this trial, gavel-to-gavel gavel coverage each and every day on Court TV. We'll be right back. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. The cause of death is one of the elements of the crime. Prosecutors have to prove this beyond any and all reasonable doubt. So if there's any other reasonable explanation for how or why George Floyd died that does not involve Derek Chauvin, then Derek Chauvin will walk. He will be found not guilty. That's, that's what this case is about. It's about how he died, why he died, and 
if it has nothing to do with Derek Chauvin's actions, then he will not be convicted of second-degree murder, won't be convicted of third-degree murder, won't be convicted of manslaughter. He will walk out of that courtroom 100% free. All right. Michael Ayala, still with me. Um, This big challenge, this cause of death, there is um, one road that I thought would have been a very strong road to conviction and proving that cause of death, which is, you know, what the medical examiner has to say. Let's take a listen, though, to um, something that the jury is not going to hear because it's almost as important as what they will hear. Take a listen. I asked counsel for clarification of this, and it's our understanding that this motion is specifically directed at um, additional work that had been done by doctors hired by the family that have not been part of the criminal investigation. And we are agreeing that we are not going to put those in in our case in chief. So with that understanding of the limitation of motion 20, uh, particularly uh, specifically doctors Biden or Baden and Wilson, we would agree to this motion. So there you have it. Dr. Michael Baden and Dr. Wilson Two pathologists who were hired by the family of George Floyd will not be called by prosecutors in this case. And Michael Ayala, the the opinion, and we've we've played it over and over on Court TV because it's so powerful. Uh, Dr. Michael Bodden's opinion would be the home run grand slam for prosecutors. That's, I think, what they hoped that their own medical examiner uh, had said in his report. Yeah, I agree. Um, I was shocked to hear this. Well, shocked in one sense. I mean, we looked at the witness list and neither one of those uh, pathologists were on the witness list. So we knew something was up, wasn't sure what what it was. And then we find out they're not going to be called. And I, 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 for the life of me, I couldn't figure out why wouldn't you want that? As you said, we we saw his statement. That's exactly what everyone thought happened. Uh, He sort of validates everything that everyone saw on the tape, but it doesn't coincide with Baker's, with Andrew Baker, the state's pathologist report. It does not, it's a little bit at odds. And I think what the, what the state is thinking is, I got this guy, Andrew Baker, very well-respected pathologist who has this opinion. And then I have Dr. Baden, also well-respected, but it differs. All of a sudden I'm creating doubt just by having these two guys testify because I got two people saying two different things. One says asphyxia was not, and there's no bruising around the neck, et cetera, no petechia in the eyes. Then you have Baden saying it was. So I had to make a choice. Where do I go? I have to go with the states because if I don't go with him, then I got real issues. So I think they had the, they made a Hobson's choice there and went with the state's medical examiner thinking that was the best way to go. And quite frankly, I thought it would be a problem if they did have Baden testify and, and this is the way they solved that problem. So you've got Dr. Baker, the medical examiner from Hennepin County, as you said, very well respected, but his conclusion was not asphyxiation. That was not the cause of death here. It was it was heart failure. There were there were elements of what Chauvin did. He says it is homicide, right? He's saying it's death at the hands of another, which is important. Uh, But the mechanism of death, he's not saying that the windpipe was shut down or crushed and he couldn't breathe like George Floyd was saying. Instead, he's saying it was heart failure, which, 
you know, provides an opening for, for the defense, whereas Dr. Bodden was very clear. He said the cause of death is exactly what we saw in the video. It's what we all saw in the video, the, the pressure on the neck and the back. He couldn't breathe, and, and, and he died. And that's what I, I think would be very, very, um, it would be a lot easier as a prosecutor to put all of that together because everything's matching up. Now, all of a sudden, once you get into the world of heart failure, Michael, I think this is where uh, the defense now has an opening to explore and to explain the heart failure. And one of the explanations is, is going to be drugs, that he ingested a whole bunch of drugs. And a piece of evidence that they wanted to use to prove all of that was what happened to George Floyd when he was uh, approached by police one year prior to his death. It, it wasn't any of the officers uh, from last year, but it was a different set of officers. But the circumstance is very similar, and the defense wants to get that in front of this jury. Let's take a listen. As I understood it in our September motion hearing, there is not an assertion by the defense that Mr. Chauvin knew or had arrested Mr. Floyd on, as part of that May 16th, 2019 incident. Correct. Um, but and then, but if, you, if, you look at, if you look at the 2019 response, right, the Minneapolis police pull him over. He, the officer draws his firearm immediately because Mr. Floyd is not showing his hands. And I know that in this particular case, Officer Lane did that exact same thing. It goes to the measure of the police response to that particular situation. So if, if we're going to come in here and we're going to have experts from Los Angeles and Montana and wherever else they're coming in from to say this was an unauthorized use of force and you have a prior incident where officers used an identical use of force in an almost identical situation, uh, that's where it becomes relevant. Well, you can make your offer proof. We can revisit it later, but uh, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm not convinced. It's not going to come in. <laughs> the writing's on the wall. The writing's on the wall. But th they wanted to do two things with it. One, talk about the level of, in, of, of force that was used at, for the incident itself. And number two, the fact that George Floyd, in 2019, as he's approached by police, ingests drugs. And he ends up going to the hospital and has to be treated for it. So, And, and what they're saying is they now discovered um, in the backseat of the, of the police cruiser some more drugs that, that would... Um, support their argument that George Floyd had a bunch of drugs on him, ingested him when police approached him, and they're going to say that's why he died. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the type of evidence, Vinny, that I think the layperson watching, let's say someone watching this trial has seen the video, this is the type of evidence that makes people feel the system is unfair. Because they're saying, you know, why are we bringing an evidence of this against the victim in this case, right? We, we normally see this type of evidence against defendants, not the victims. But here they are trying to sully up the victim. And it boils down to one thing, and I've said this all along, is what did those officers know? And that's where kind of the judge is. He asked them the straight question. He said, what does that have to do with what the officers knew? We have the information. There were drugs in the system based on the report by Andrew Baker. We know it was in there, so we can make the argument you want to make without adding in this piece of evidence, which is controversial, 
and again, when it comes to this type of evidence, Vinny, the question is, how probative is it? How much does it prove versus how prejudicial it is? How, how much can it hurt hearing this evidence and giving this evidence to the jury? And I think the judge is squarely in the camp where this type of evidence is very prejudicial to, to the victim in this case, and not necessarily probative enough to be allowed in because we'll get the evidence in in other ways because those officers were not aware that he took those drugs at the scene. And they were dealing with the scene as it existed. And that's how you're going to have to argue this case. And I think it's the absolute right decision. Yeah, I don't think it's coming in, but I understand what, what the defense is attempting to prove because there's video of George Floyd as he's first approached. And the defense filed this video in one of their pretrial motions where you see a little white dot on George Floyd's tongue as his mouth opens. And we've shown it on court TV. And if, if you zoom in, I mean, I can't tell what it is. Uh, but the defense is arguing that that is one of the uh, fentanyl pills. Uh, I guess it comes in pill form that he has just ingested. And they say he just put that in his mouth. He is, he's now ingested the fentanyl, and that's what killed him. And it's exactly what he did in 2019 when police approached. He was shoving a bunch of drugs in his mouth. Uh, that day on the 19th, the police noticed it, told him to spit it out. Uh, but... I understand what they're trying to do, but, but, but. There, there's there, there's two things, Vinny. One of the arguments that that Eric Nelson made, the defense attorney, was that they did a testing on some white pills found in the police cruiser that they that they were trying to get them in, and they found um, the pills of meth, uh, methamphetamine and fentanyl pills partially chewed with George Floyd's DNA on it. So what he's arguing is that because they found that in the back of the cruiser, no longer is it speculation what was in his mouth. They're saying the fact that they found those partially chewed pills on the back of the cruiser, we now know that that pill or that white substance in his mouth that we've showed many times on Court TV in that photo is fentanyl. And now that it's no longer a guess, now we can bring this in. So he's got a double argument there and not the weakest argument in the world. But again, I don't think this judge is, is leaning in that direction. Yeah, I don't think they're going to get the 2019 in, uh, but they'll get in all that other information about what happened that day. And and that, again, will be there. They, you know, they have no burden to prove anything, but you want to give this jury, if you're uh, Derek Chauvin's attorney, some alternative, some reasonable alternative uh, uh, potential causations here of the death of George Floyd because the video is going to be this enormous piece of evidence uh, inside the courtroom that everyone's going to see. So you you need to come not come up with but try to establish some other causation here. There's another interesting uh, piece of evidence, and and this was one of the, there were a bunch of people that were watching uh, as George Floyd was dying that day, and so many of what so many things of what they were saying really struck me. And I think all of these folks will be important witnesses because they saw it firsthand. We saw the video and we all removed. Could you imagine what it was like to actually be there? Well, one of them was an actual EMT firefighter who was trying to actually step in and intervene. Let's take a listen to some arguments before the trial that, that just took place about what she can and cannot or should and should not testify to. Let's take a listen. Your Honor, with respect to number 21, the defense is, speak, is seeking an order precluding uh, a witness named Genevieve Hansen, who is a Minneapolis firefighter who was present at the scene, from offering speculative testimony that 
her intervention would have saved his life or could have saved his life. Ultimately, Your Honor, while we certainly understand that Ms. Hansen has certain qualifications, she's a Minneapolis firefighter, she's certainly trained in things of CPR, um, she may have experience in, in various regards. However, in this particular incident, our position is, is that her testimony or her opining that had she been able to intervene would have saved her life is just simply too speculative. Certainly the, the cause of Mr. Floyd's death is of great controversy in this case. And um, the, the uh, while she may be certified to perform CPR, she is not a forensic pathologist, she is not a physician of any nature, and whether or not Mr. Floyd's death was preventable had she been able to intervene would simply be speculative. This is a fascinating issue uh, with this witness, but just in general, which is some expert, I'm sure, will, will give that opinion. It may not be this firefighter at the scene, but they'll hear her words. How big do you think that will loom in the courtroom? Because when I first watched this, one thing that struck me was this, this failure to render aid concept where things have gone south, but you're not doing anything. And, and to me... That is that is one thing that's very obvious, and I think almost there's no argument against it, that the situation changed four minutes in, but the actions of Chauvin did not change. Mm -hmm. So how do you think this plays into the charges in the case? Yeah, I think this is a tremendous witness for the prosecution. Um, the fact that she's not going to be able to say that she would have saved his life or feels like she could have saved George Floyd's life, I think is important. But, but really, just from seeing her on the tape, she's extremely passionate about it. She's obviously someone who has made a civic duty a big part of her life. She's going to be extremely credible to this jury to say, here I am, a trained professional, looking at what's going on, and, and I could not believe my eyes. I, I, she's going to say something to that effect because she literally wanted to get involved in this police action, no longer fearing uh, if something could happen to her own person, right? She was willing, she walked up to Tutau and was like, let me get in there. She was not afraid of this person on the ground, but yet we have this, this Derek Chauvin still acting as if he's a threat in some way. That whole testimony could even play into this issue of intent. The fact that he was not allowed, uh, that did not allow this person to come in or did not listen to this person who is trained and telling them something needs to be done for this man can go towards an argument that, hey, at that point, he's got awareness of the situation and he's still choosing to act in the same way that can go to intent. So she's, she's an incredible witness for the prosecution. Could go to intent, could go to depravity, if that becomes part of this case. Yes, absolutely. It's going to be powerful. All right, folks. Uh, Michael Ayala, Court TV anchor, uh, great to speak with you. We'll be doing this throughout the trial. Thanks so much, Michael. Always a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. All right, when we come back, I'm going to tell you why, as we begin this jury selection process, I believe that we will get a very fair and impartial jury. That's next. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area.
we will get a fair, I would say a very fair and impartial jury in the Derek Chauvin case. The man accused of murdering George Floyd. It'll be fair and impartial. And, and here's why, folks. Three simple words. I trust jurors. I, I, have, I have attorneys on my show every night, and they are a little more skeptical than I am. Maybe they've had some bad experiences. But I have, I, at Court TV, through the years, I cover nothing but high-profile cases, whether it's the biggest case in the city or, uh, at the time or it's the biggest case in the nation. Uh, inevitably, they are trials that people have talked about, they've reported about, and a lot of times jurors know about it ahead of time. But as you'll watch, as, as you see on court TV during the jury selection process, there's a filtering that takes place where the judge has an opportunity to question jurors, the attorneys do as well, um, and they get to the bottom um, of, of what's going on inside the mind of these potential jurors. Like, yeah, they saw the video or they heard of the video. Yeah, they talked about it. But eventually, through the questioning, they've got to come to the place of, listen, despite anything I know, everything I know, what I think, I can put that aside and base my verdict solely on the evidence. And that's the, the promise that jurors make. And, and jurors, I believe, keep that promise. Of course, there's exceptions to everything, right? There will be what we call a stealth juror here or there. But I can't tell you how many times that I've covered trials and seen what juries do and how seriously they take their responsibilities. You know, sometimes us who are covering the case or folks at home who are watching it, we are ready to uh, uh, convict like that or we're ready to acquit like that and say, oh, these charges are ridiculous, just acquit them. Or we say, oh, come on, come on, this is so obvious he's guilty, just vote guilty and be done with it. But they never do it that way. The jurors just don't do it that way. And, that, and that's why I've come to really trust them. Um, they also self-report, which you might find surprising, because each and every day during the course of the trial, because it's a high-profile case and the jurors are not sequestered in a hotel without televisions and newspaper, no, they're going back and forth to their homes, to their families, each and every day and night, you know, carrying their, their, their cell phones. And watching TV. And, and what the judge instructs them is if you see or hear anything or if anyone tries to talk to you about the case, let me know. And they do. Sometimes they self-report on things like, why would you even report that? But they do because they take their jobs very seriously. And, and a lot of times they'll narc on each other. Like it, once, once in a while you may hear a juror say, yeah, I, I, I thought I heard two of the other jurors talking about the case. And, and then the judge will bring everyone in and he or she will question those jurors to make sure that they can still be fair and impartial. And if they can't, or if one of the attorneys objects and has an argument to eliminate the juror, then they're eliminated and they bring in the alternates. But the system really works well. It does. And it's because the attorneys and everyone have an opportunity to find out who these jurors are before they sit down in, in the jury box. They filled out these very detailed questionnaires beforehand and then one by one the judge is bringing them in and and having an opportunity to hear from that juror and at the end of the day this is our system and our system works because how many times in a high profile case where the court of public opinion maybe sometimes spearheaded by by me in in the way i see the evidence in a case 
um, is the opposite of the way the jury saw it and, and what the jury uh, agreed to. I, I really think that in these high-profile cases, because of the way we've set everything up, that at the end of the day, you're going to get a, a jury that's fair and impartial. Now, you may not, in a, in a case like this where the video seems to skew towards conviction when people just look at the video, don't know any of the other facts. And I say that because of the reaction to this video. And, and every guest that I had on my show, including police officers, said, no, that was wrong. That's a crime. Every criminal defense attorney just about comes on and says, no, that's a crime. Because of that response, um, I think because a lot of people have seen that and, and may hold that that belief, those jurors will be eliminated. And those all of those jurors who have seen the video and believe that's a crime and, and can't be convinced otherwise, those are what we call great prosecution jurors. And they won't be eligible for this case. So prosecutors will be left with those who can put that video aside or whatever feelings or initial reaction they had to that video, put that aside and, and listen to the rest of the story and then weigh the evidence and come to a conclusion after discussing it with your fellow jurors. And that's, that's advantage defense. So I think in high-profile cases where the overwhelming initial reaction to what happened favors the prosecution, when you get to trial, the ultimate jury will lean the other way and be more open to the defense case. doesn't mean that they're going to win. It just means that they'll have a better chance with this set of jurors than they would with 12 random people that you picked off the street. Because I think if you did that, did that 12 random people off the street without any screening process whatsoever, prosecutors would, would have a much better chance because they're already dismissing jurors who said that, yeah, one that said, I want to be on the jury because I want people to know my opinion about this. And another one who said, yeah, I made up my mind. I, I know exactly, you know, and, and I'm, I know exactly the way I would vote and the way I feel about this. They, they're both gone. You see, those are two great prosecution jurors dismissed, not being a part of the final 12 who will make this decision. So, Here's the situation, folks. This is a, a, an incredible trial. It's the first one we've ever gotten cameras inside the courtroom in the state of Minnesota, and for good reason, because of the nature of the case uh, and the pandemic. And, and this is the type of story where the public needs to see it, because if you just hear the verdict, you know, two months from now, without watching the trial, you'll be wondering, like, well, what happened inside that court? How did that happen? Well, there's a way to find out how it happened. You can watch the trial day in and day out on Court TV. We've got gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage. Every piece of evidence, every witness, every argument that is made, you can see and hear during the day. Then every night from 8 to 11, I will bring you the biggest moments on my, on my television program. Now, I said television program, which means, yeah, we're on TV, not just a podcast. And if you have a digital antenna, please rescan it if you have not found Court TV yet. Because I... I, I Guarantee you, you will find Court TV on that digital antenna. So rescan it, and you'll be able to watch your your gavel to gavel coverage of this trial that is so important that has had already had so much of an impact. The trial and the verdict may likewise have an impact on our system, but to understand it, you need to watch it. Um, we'll be covering this each and every week, folks. Um, 
working your way through this trial, jury selection, opening statements, the evidence, closing arguments, and then, of course, the verdict. I will speak with you next week. I'm Benny Politan. Thanks so much for listening and downloading. Have a great week. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.